I am excited to welcome you all to the very first podcast of In the Spotlight with Sharon. In every episode, I will be engaging in a light-hearted discussion with someone who is currently in the spotlight, whether that be from sport, music, TV or radio. Thank you for clicking on the link to listen. There are so many podcasts out there that I am genuinely excited and grateful you found your way here. My aim for this podcast is a platform where I can share my passion for talking to people, finding out their own personal story and what drives them to be successful. I also aim to build a community where you, the listener, can interact with me and the guest and hopefully be inspired along the way. There are three ways to get in touch. Number one is email in the spotlight with Sharon at gmail.com to my Twitter page, which is at SEE75 or number three, Instagram in the spotlight with Sharon. Please subscribe and share this podcast if you have enjoyed it. Right, so let's get going. In this episode, I am very excited to introduce my very first guest, Joanna Rousel. So welcome Joe. thank you for agreeing to be my first guest. Your achievements on the bike are just incredible. You were talent spotted as a young teenager and became a full-time cyclist with British Cycling in Manchester. Then within nine months you had won your first world title in the women's team pursuit. You became Olympic champion at London 2012. And then in 2014, you completed the World Championships and Commonwealth Games double with gold medals in the individual pursuit. In the 2016 Rio Olympics, you took the gold again with three new world records. Wow, those are some achievements and I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> um, have you got one word that you could sum up all of your achievements so far? <laughs> one, one word's difficult um I think hmm oh you started with a difficult question here <laughs> I think sort of almost like unbelievable to, to, look, to look back and, and realize that I've done all that like as, yeah. as an athlete you're always in the moment and you're always looking for the next goal and it's not until you like stop and reflect that you're like wow I actually like did quite a lot there yeah you've achieved all so, of that yeah sort of a little bit overwhelming maybe to reflect on it like that it's impressive written down anyway <laughs> uh, were you always ambitious though even at a young age um I think I was I mean I never mm, I used to swim competitively when I was like I don't know under 10 years old yeah and people used to joke about oh you could do the Olympics one day but I was never really at that sort of level of swimming I mean I was sort of competing at county level but um right. I don't know if I was ever going to be an international swimmer really but it sort of used to be joked about a little bit when I was younger and then but then when I was at school I was very academic like I wouldn't have classed myself as sporty at school at all no. and I think the sports that you do at school like netball and rounders and all those sort of things like if they're if they're not your thing you can easily think that you're just not one of the sporty ones but I, I guess it's always been like ambitious and sort of always like aim to be the best I could be like I wouldn't say I ever really set out like I want to be an Olympic champion no. but it was always I want to see how well I can do and you know where I can get myself to like I was yeah. more competitive with myself than other people if that sort of makes sense so so you were talent spotted really by British Cycling yeah. when they came to your school um can you tell me a bit about that 
Yeah, so I was 15 and British Cycling came to the school and it was around about the time of the Athens Olympics, I think. And they were basically carrying out some sort of really basic talent ID tests on the school playing field. So there was a, a six lap race, like an endurance race, and there was a sprint across the field for a, for a sprint test. They brought along mountain bikes and helmets and everything. Yeah. And we were just told if we wanted to take part, we just needed to change to our PE kit and, and go up and do these talent ID tests. I really wasn't thinking like, you know what, well, I've, I've got what it takes to be an Olympic cyclist. Like of all the sports, um, I'd never done, like I could ride a bike, but I'd mm. never looked at competitive cycling the slightest. No. But the day they came happened to be a nice sunny day. And the, it was one afternoon and it happened to coincide with double maths, which um, <laughs> I actually quite enjoyed maths. Like I did maths A-level in the end, but yeah. um, I think most people in that situation would think, you know what, I'm going to take an afternoon on the school field Definitely. rather than in the classroom on a nice yeah. day like that. So um, and I went up and did these, tab- did these tests and never really thought much would come from it. But I guess a sort of inner competitiveness came out in me when yeah. I was actually racing around the field against the other girls. And I won my race, my endurance race, my six laps of the field. But my time, I don't think was as good as some other girls had done at the school. And I remember okay. thinking, like, could I have done better had I been in a race with faster people? Like, because I won my race, yeah. but they were comparing the time. So I remember thinking, oh, you know, perhaps there was more there. So I was already sort of critiquing my yeah. my performance in that sense. Um, but yeah, so the te- tests... That's basically um, meant that I got invited back for another stage of testing, which was at a later date, and that was far more scientific. So that was on static bikes on turbo trailers, and they had um, cranks on them that measured power output. They measured our like heart rate. They measured height and weight, and worked out like power to rate ratio and all those sort of things. And right. I think that was where I sort of shone a bit more. Yeah. It was um, a bit more sort of looking at the pure numbers of it, and I guess I was sort of relatively fit for my age group having always like done my swimming when I was younger and that sort of thing so um yeah as a result of that th- th- those sort of basic numbers and power up so they decided to um talent ID me from that so um you were enrolled then um to join their talent team um and that yeah. was obviously where they recognized your raw talent so what are your memories of that time oh, to be honest the my first few talent team camps were absolutely horrendous so I really had no idea what I got myself into. So I'd been, I'd been talent ID through this system and I was told like I was going to join the Southeast region um, talent development squad, as yeah. it were. And we basically had a camp, training camp once a month. And it was always either in like a school half term or just on a weekend. And my very first one was um, a weekend in January. It was mountain biking in Surrey. So it was obviously really bad weather for January um I'd never really done proper mountain biking like I think I probably thought that I knew you know mountain biking was you know off-road rather than on-road but you know proper mountain biking is a lot more technical than just a nice (laughs) leisurely path through a park um I couldn't like change an inner tube um if I got a puncture which something everyone else could do and everyone just sort of sort of looked at me when I got a puncture and everyone was in like lycra and I turned up in like a tracksuit and I could not have looked like less of the part if I tried I really did not look like a cyclist at all I felt completely out of my depth and I was like you know what am I doing here like this was Mm -hmm. just not like I did not come across as a talented cyclist at that point in the slightest 
So um, you mentioned um, about the gender balance wasn't equal in the team at all. Why do you no. think that was? Yeah, what what were the reasons yeah. behind that? So when I when I joined the talent team, I think oh I can't get the numbers completely right. There were definitely five girls, and there must have been about fifteen or twenty boys. So right. huge huge disparity um, between boys and girls. And I'd gone to an all girls school, so I wasn't really used to having any sort of inequality like that. Yeah. And it was something that I questioned quite early on, like, why are there not more girls? Like, this it was a little bit weird. And the answer was just like at the Olympic Games at the time, there used to be 10 events on the track and seven of those were for men and only three, only three were for women. So in terms of like medal potential at Olympic Games, which is what British cycling is all about, it, it's not. It, at the time you know they needed to, de to develop more talent from mm. you know teenage boys yeah. because there yeah. was more medal opportunity so I sort of I never really accepted that I was like okay but that's not really okay is it no and I guess it's something that I've sort of questioned throughout my career and still questioning my retirement that I was going to say what what are your thoughts now do you think British cycling the inequality there has changed I think I think the main difference is that the Olympic events have changed and that meant that they had to change their program so right. I think my opinion was never that it was British cycling in the wrong it was more cycling as a sport as a whole I see yeah was unequal so British cycling were just doing what they needed to do to win the relevant medals whereas they changed the Olympic events in 2012 so for London Olympics and they took out a few men's events that didn't really uh, please them and they brought in some new women's ones and it was equal. So it's five events Good. for men, five for women on the track. And then, you know, for, for the most part of my career, the programmes have been pretty equal. There's been pretty similar numbers of men and women on various levels of the programme because there, there are equal opportunities for medals now, which is good. Yeah. Um, you describe yourself really as um, having an analytical brain. Uh, can you enlarge yeah. on what that is? You know, how, how has it helped you in your career or has it? Yeah, um debatable i think i think a lot of a lot of sport now is really analyzed you know we have sports scientists we have performance analysts mm. physiologists everything you know everything can be measured a, a number can be assigned to everything and i think i really thrived off that like i love to be able to measure my performance on the bike i love looking at power outputs times you know all, all, all the different data you can sort of look at and really try and analyze why i was having perhaps a good day or a bad day yeah but but you're right it's not always a good thing i think part of being a good athlete is really also knowing your body and being able to respond to how it feels which i definitely was by the end of my career very good at i, I knew myself really well in that sense but i guess what was the frustrating thing was what the numbers might be saying might not always correlate to how you felt and how you're actually performing on the bike and that was something that i found quite, quite frustrating like it's not as it's not as simple as you know a nice formula where you do this and this comes out the other end like sometimes you could do everything right the numbers can all look good but yeah. actually you have a really bad day on the bike come race day and it's difficult to explain that and I think there's just there's so much more to sport than the actual like physical training side of it like I really think it's like 50 50 like in cycling head and legs I always say mm. it really it just isn't about the power in your legs and mm. I guess that's something that frustrated me a little bit about sport like I couldn't there was a lot that I couldn't control and you come to race day and a lot of it is out of your control there's only so much you can do yeah um, and I get that's like life in general is probably like that in a lot of areas um but yeah I think sometimes it was it was easy to overanalyze sometimes on how to sort of be able to find that balance between accepting 
things as they were and sort of putting the work in Hmm. and thinking what will be will be so um from that then you progressed was it to the junior national squad um is that the was that the olympic training development program yeah so that's for 16 to 18 year olds okay but um I, i seem to remember you saying that um at that time you were pretty poor at cycling so how how did that change it must have changed somewhere <laughs> yeah so when i was on like the, the talent team sort of so that was the youth squad from the 16s yeah i, I was really quite quite poor at all the technical yeah. side of it and i didn't know about the different disciplines and my mechanical skills were terrible um by the time i was 17 I managed to get a place on like what was the junior national squad effectively so it's called the Olympic development program at the time it's got a different name now but that was um about sort of developing riders in their late teens and also going to the junior world championships Mm -hmm. and I I definitely progressed quite I definitely progressed quite quickly because going from a 15 year old talent spotted completely clueless by the time I was 17 I had become national champion so that was um, pretty good to have won my, like my age category at the national yeah, championships. Wow. And I got taken to the world championships and I got, um, the best place I got at the world champs was ninth, which um, was another example of me probably overanalyzing that performance and thinking that was terrible um, because other people Absolutely on the team not. were winning medals. <laughs> but actually having been in the sport for less than two years exactly. and to top 10 at the world championships wasn't the worst thing on no, reflection no. now. But I think at the time, it probably shows like I, I wanted more because I wasn't, you know, happy to say, yeah, it got a top 10. Yeah. I was like, actually, that's not really, not really where I want to be at. So, um, yeah, still, still a very steep learning curve. My first world championship experience really sort of blew me away in terms of I was a bundle of nerves and found the whole thing really like intimidating. And it's the sort of thing that you can't, like you can't really teach someone to be able no. to to deal with that well. Like you've got to go out there and experience it and put yourself out of your comfort zone and put yourself on the start line of those races yeah. until you've actually learned how, how to deal with it best. So yeah, very steep learning curve. I was going to say, have you always like wanted to win, you know, when, whatever you do, have you always had that, you know, the urge to, to be the winner, whether it was at a board game or, you know, at any races or... Mm, I don't I don't know if I'm really that competitive like I know people that are more competitive than me yeah I wouldn't I guess I wouldn't have put myself in that competitive category maybe I'm more competitive than I think I am um how did you manage to balance you know your studies with the cycling yep so while I was on that sort of junior squad I was doing my a-levels and it was really difficult I'm not gonna lie it was it was Mm. a struggle to to be able to balance the two um you know you're getting a training plan set by the national coach which you want to adhere to you're desperate to impress you're desperate to progress at that level you're really like you know you're climbing the ladder you know you're not at that elite level yet you're really trying to get yourself there so every sort of you know it, it really feels like every week of training is vital um I mean which it is but I guess I think my reflection would be to other young athletes like really prioritize your schoolwork at that time I probably didn't prioritize it enough as I could have done and also it's a bit different now like you know we've got so much more online so many more online yeah. resources which weren't available back back in my day <laughs> um so it's a little bit harder to sort of catch up on schoolwork when you when you were away or something but um no it was it was difficult to balance the two I think I think I did okay at it but yeah. I think that's a reflection that I could have, I could have done better um in hindsight was there a particular moment at all where you, you know, you realised that you could actually make it to the Olympics? You thought, wow, I, I, I know I could actually become Olympic champion. Is, was there a particular moment? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I've actually been thinking about that recently. I've been thinking how much of my career did I spend doubting myself and how much did I spend believing in myself? Because mm -hmm. there must have been a tipping point at some point. I think when I, when I left school, so I, I finished my A-levels in summer 2007. And then I moved up to Manchester to be a full-time cyclist. And then by March 2008, so nine months later, I won, I was, well, I was part of the winning team at the World Championships in the women's team pursuit. And that was the yeah. first time that I've been a world championship event for women. And at that point, it wasn't an Olympic event, but that was my first seat. So there was a senior world championship. So I was only 19 years old. And I think that was a real point where I thought I, I belong on this team. Yeah. Like everyone else in Manchester at the time was already either Olympic champions or world champions or Commonwealth champions or all of the above. And, you know, when you come in as, a, as an 18, 19 year old, having just left school into that sort of setup and you're riding around with the likes of like Chris Hoy and Jason Creeley and Victoria Penson and everybody, it's very easy to feel sort of out of place and like you shouldn't, like you shouldn't be there. Yeah. But I think having won that world title in 2008, I sort of felt a bit more like I belonged then. What, what were the strengths that you brought to the team then? What? Oh, um, I think at that point I was sort of the the young, keen, excitable one. Mm. Um, definitely as an athlete, when you're like 18, 19, 20, you just recover from training quicker and you, you adapt to everything a lot quicker. And I guess I, I was by far the youngest in the squad then and sort of very um, eager and sort of quick to learn and quick to pick things up. Yeah. Um, by the end of my career at age 27, it was really very different strengths what I brought to the team that I was sort of, um, yeah, very young and excitable at that point. Um, I'm interested more to hear about um, Professor Stephen Peters and how he influenced your career because I've read his book, The Chimp Paradox, which is very yeah. interesting actually. And uh, just wondered how did he help with your training? Yeah, so he is a psychiatrist and he was um, the team sort of sports psychiatrist when I first joined the GB team. So back, this was like 2007, 2008 sort of time. Mm -hmm. And he quite famously worked with the likes of Chris Hoy and Victoria Pendleton in the build up to the Beijing Olympics. And even though I was one of the youngest members of the team at that point, we still got access to, um, to working with Steve and talking through everything from like dealing with nerves and pressure. And I think that, that was the big thing that I worked on with him. Like definitely as a young athlete, I was a bundle of nerves at every race. I used to feel sick beforehand and like almost not want to be there. And he talked a lot about sort of fight and flight and freeze yeah. and how your, your brain doesn't recognize that it's a bike race that you're at. Your brain goes back to thinking you're perhaps in the jungle and this is a lion that you're facing and you're gonna die and it's life and death and everything depends on this on this race but actually it's not life and death at all it's riding a bike around in circles at speed and you know all the pressure that is there is yeah. is mainly put on by yourself and we went through some really good strategies for how to sort of deal with that like he talks about the chimp you know you're in a chimp and how you can yeah. exercise the chimp and, and talk about basically your fears so it could be so he said to me like you know what are you nervous about on racing like actually voice those actually exercise those so it could have been anything from I'm scared of falling off I'm scared of losing I'm scared of this I'm scared of that and then you try and go through all those fears all those issues that your chimp's got and say well actually how many of those are in my control and how many aren't and his idea was about focusing on controlling the controllables yeah so you know a fear like I might come last actually I can't affect that like I can ride my bike as fast as I can if everyone else in the race rides faster like well done to them you know that yeah. would mean I come last and actually 
trying to focus on your performance rather than your results and the process of getting there rather than the outcome. That was um, quite key, which I think it, it took a lot of work. Like it wasn't just the sake of having, you know, one chat with him and suddenly, yep, I've got mm. this nailed. It was sort of multiple sessions, really going through a mental warm up as much as you would go through a physical warm up. Like I really do think it's 50-50, like legs and head, like I've said. Yeah. And I think it's easy to focus on race day, about getting nutrition right, getting warmed up on the bike, but actually doing that mental warm up and silencing those fears and, and getting yourself ready um, was really important. He was really key to me embracing that side of it. And definitely by the end of my career, I'd say my biggest strength was my sort of ability to deal with the, the pressure of the big situations and you know not getting nervous. Whereas so, in contrast to the start of my career, that was my biggest weakness. Definitely. Yeah. So do you still use that technique now, you know, for, um, for um, perhaps, you know, your studies now? Um, how, how do you implement that to your daily life? Yeah, I, I do really try and implement it. I think it's definitely something that's easier said than done. You know, it's easy to sit here and say, don't worry about things you can't control, but mm. inevitably we all do. But I really do try and sort of draw on my experiences and, and remember those things. And if I am getting stressed or worried about something, I think, hang on, actually, what, what can I control here? I can't control this, this and this. If I yeah. can control it, okay, let's do something about it. Um, so it's very different. I think um, it's, it, is, it is, it's hard to employ sometimes, but you've got to sort of buy into that and think, you know what, I can, you know, I, all, I basically tell myself that I've done this before. Like, you know, I've not done the same things before, but I, I, no, I've had but... situations that made me very nervous and I felt very pressured. And actually, I've been able to deal with them. So sort of try and take confidence from that. London um, 2012 was such a euphoric event, you know, across the country. But you were literally right in the centre of it all. What's your memories of that special time? Oh, very nice question. I always love talking about London. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a really special time. I remember the build up to London, there being quite a bit of negativity around the games. Mm. I remember there being lots of headlines about how much it would cost and everything like this. Uh, you know, would it be a hit? Would, would tickets sell? I was going to say, I remember that. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was hard to ignore that really as an athlete because like as an athlete, it was, you know, an amazing opportunity to have a home Olympic Games. Like, mm. A lot of people don't get that in their career. And I felt very privileged that that was going to potentially be me. But there was, I remember a lot of negativity in the build-up, but mainly for me, it was it was about focusing on being in that team. Like a lot of people are often surprised to hear that you don't actually find out you're selected for Team GB until around sort of mid-June, early June, maybe, mid-June maybe, with, yeah. with the game starting like end of July. So, you know, you're talking about six weeks out, you actually know that you are selected for Team GB. But then that isn't enough. Like, so for Team GB for London, we had four girls selected, but we our team race is a team of three. So you always select an extra person. So you've got a reserve there. But you don't really select like three team members in a reserve. Like they just select four team members and they right. can choose who's in the team up to an hour before the start. Yeah. And they literally do. They literally wait until, you know, the cutoff and see, you know, who's in good shape. So anyone twisted their ankle, who's having a good day, who's having a bad day. So I think my overriding memories of London were really about focusing on, on me being in the team. Mm. And that was my far bigger focus than actually could we win or, or could we lose mm. and um it's funny because looking back actually I, I was in brilliant shape I was in the form of my life and really there was probably no, not much doubt that I'd actually you know make that selection for the team but at the time 
you know your mind this is full of doubts yeah um so I think in the build-up you, you know you, you don't allow yourself to enjoy from the build-up because you're so focused and it'd be easy to get overwhelmed by everything but then once that race was done I really let myself enjoy enjoy the whole experience of the experience. games which was just like nothing I'd ever experienced before because we've done world championships around the world we've done world cups European championships and essentially you're racing you're racing the same girls you know everyone's there the your usual rivals are at the olympics that you've raced up you know yeah across sort of the international circuit for the whole last couple of seasons but it's not like any other race at all like it's just another level in terms of exposure and media coverage and i just couldn't believe like my phone just almost exploded with notifications <laughs> facebook twitter everything right. i should have turned them off and uh, yeah, it was, it was a crazy, crazy time. Do you remember the actual race itself or is that a complete blur? Um, I do remember some of it. I remember, so we got the nod at about an hour to go that, you know, who was in the team. Yeah. And at that point, um, I felt relief. Yeah. And then I suddenly thought, oh God, we've got a bike race to try and win here because I really <laughs> had just focused on being in the team. And um, I remember on the start line for the final, I honestly wasn't nervous. I was I wasn't nervous for the qualifier I was quite nervous for the semi-final but then I was quite calm going to the final I felt quite sort of in control of things right and I remember a bit of the race I remember feeling good and it almost felt like a good bit too good to be true hmm. and then I remember about a lap to go maybe it was more than a lap to go I'd done my last turn on the front and I'd swung up and I'd got to the back and I remember we could see the American squad which is, is rare, like, you know, you often win these races by less than a second. So the fact that they were in sight in our, in our race, the team pursuit was quite something. I remember thinking, nobody fall off, which is quite a funny <laughs> thought to think of the last couple of laps of the Olympic Games, but that was my <laughs> really? like, nobody fall off at this point. Wow. Yeah, because um, we, we were that far in the lead that we, 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 we had pretty much had it in the bag at that point. It was just a case yeah. of finishing. Can, um, and, and we can, finished strongly and it, it was all good. Can you hear the roar of the crowd or is that completely blocked out? Oh, you can definitely hear the roar of the crowd. We, yeah. we love the crowd. So in the Velodrome, um, I think in London, there's about 6,000 seats and the roof is quite low. And I'm not an acoustic expert, but, you know, the noise honestly echoes around the Velodrome. And we, we love the noise of the crowd. It really helps because most of the race, you can't see your, your rivals. You can't see your opponents. No. And th that, and, you know, you're in a world of pain like your legs are full of lactic, your legs are locking up and you're thinking, I can't do another lap, I can't do another lap. And you've still got loads of laps to go. And the crowd really helped carry you through and that really gives you that boost from, you know, from training sessions to race day. And, you know, we love that support. I remember thinking after, after the London Olympics, like, is anything ever going to compare to that? Like having a home yeah. Olympic Games with 6,000 people in the crowd, I, I would guess at least 5,500 of those on our side, really. And it was, um, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, you can't hear yourself think, which is no. probably a good thing, really. Like, less <laughs> thinking the better, more pedaling fast. So, yeah, absolutely loved it. So you were basically thrust into the spotlight. Um, how was that? How did you cope with that? Yeah, that was strange. And like I said, I hadn't really recognised how bigger deal the olympics would be no beforehand and you know one, once you finish a race at the olympics you pre the next sort of 48 hours of your life really aren't your own at all like you're you're whisked off to various media outlets straight straight away you go through the mix zone which is at the velodrome and you you know you talk to you talk to bbc you talk to sky you talk to radio stations you talk to everyone there before you get your medal then after that um 
you get whisked off and you go and you just spend another sort of 48 hours basically giving interviews to people mm. um going to various things like that and it's just all a blur and you just um you're on such a high because you've won and um I imagine it'd be more difficult if perhaps you'd maybe got a silver and had been expecting to win or something and still have to do that but basically all medalists have to do have to do this sort of um 48 hours where you go and give all these media interviews and it, it is just a whirlwind and at that point because you just had the biggest race of your life and beforehand you're so worried about eating the right thing and getting enough sleep and all these sort of things suddenly all that goes out the window and it's brilliant because you're like I can eat what I want and it doesn't matter if I get three hours sleep tonight you know who cares <laughs> and it's really nice to have that full proper relaxation and be able to really enjoy the moment and not yeah. have to think about how your legs are going to feel the next day did you did you um let your hair down at the closing ceremony can you remember much about that closing ceremony was fantastic because the spice girls were playing oh of which course. i was a you big are a fan, big fan of, yeah as a, yeah as a what like eight nine ten year old girl whenever oh. they first sort of came out i think it was my first ever cd that i bought was um, was a spice girls album so i was over the moon about that um and yeah it, it was a weird moment because it was also like i can't believe this is all over has it all really happened is this all real yeah um, i don't want it to end surreal um we, we raced the middle weekend of the games so the games is always two weeks long and we'd race the middle weekend so we spent the first week of the games sort of watching other events on tv and not really enjoying ourselves you know well not enjoying ourselves you know focus on our event and then the second week was just be able to so for that first 48 hours, sort of do what we like, go where we like, watch other sports, see people, go out, do whatever. And it was really weird that that time was coming to an end and you sort of feel like I want, I want this to last, I want this to keep yeah. going. But yeah, the closing ceremony was, was a really nice um, event, but I think we were all very, very tired by that point. I'm not and, surprised. Um, having sort of been enjoying ourselves all week so it's um but no it was it was really nice it was really nice the way they put it all together for the closing yeah. ceremony and we hadn't been to the opening ceremony so to be able to go to that with the whole wider team you know different sports all the staff as well yeah and just to be able to sort of really feel like a part of one big team special really memory nice. in rio 2016 um you achieved your three world records which is quite an achievement really and um, what can you remember about that yeah the Rio was so different to London so London we were well I was sort of young and excited and naive and didn't really know what I was doing essentially yeah uh, for Rio I was the defending champion and in the build-up to Rio I think everything like everything before London really went to plan like in hindsight when I look back you know we pretty much won everything from the build-up to London before Rio it was not going to plan at all I think we'd won nothing that season we'd got bronze at the world championships which is our worst of a world championship result at the time and um we'd not won a world cup like we just everything has sort of been going not really our way like I mean not badly I'm not going to say bronze at the world championships is a bad thing because it's not no. but it just hadn't been going all our way at all however when it came to the Olympics, we were still defending champions, and that just comes with a lot more, a lot more commitments, a lot more demands on your time, and everyone like expecting that you're going to win, and everyone sort of almost hanging that medal around your neck beforehand, and almost labelling it as anything less than gold would be a failure. Yeah, but it's really quite difficult. You know, you've really got to block that out and think. Actually, I need to focus on my own performance here, and not on everyone else's expectation. Like I'd still say, the biggest pressure comes from yourself as an athlete. But I definitely noticed before, like I thought there was a lot of pressure going into London, you know, with the home games and everything. But I'd say there's probably more external pressure 
going into Rio. Because you expected to win again. Yeah, 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 even though actually on paper there were other people faster than us. Right. Um, but yeah, the Rio experience was completely different. Was it um, a massive decision for you to retire from professional cycling? Uh, yes, it really was. So mm. yeah, we um, after winning gold in Rio in summer 2016, so the build up to that, um, I hadn't really enjoyed the last year or so of my career. Like I said, things hadn't always been going to plan. And I guess it's quite frustrating when things are out of your control and you pick up injuries here and there and all yeah. that sort of thing. So the build up to Rio, I'd been thinking in my head, this is probably going to be it for me. I hadn't decided, but I was leaning towards like, this is probably going to be my last competition. I was 27, um, meaning I would have been, well, I would have been 31 in Tokyo had it happened this year, but now it's been postponed. I would have been 32. But I was thinking that's probably going to be a little bit too odd. I think this is probably going to be it for me. And then when we stood on the podium and got that medal in Rio, I was thinking, this is pretty good. I'd quite like to do this again. Like, I don't (laughs) want to give this up just yet. And that just really threw me because I think in my head, I hadn't made my decision beforehand, but I was very much leaning towards retiring. And then I thought, oh God, do I want to carry on? The thing is, you've got got four, or in this case, five years of of really, really hard work that people don't really get to see how tough it is. And that's only, you know, you you know, you might not even make the team, you might not win. Like it's, um, it's, you know, obviously it's a huge commitment. And I sort of thought it would going to a third Olympics and potentially winning a third medal would that would that really make a difference to my life would that really make me happier yeah or actually would I be better off moving on now and sort of focusing on new challenges and I realized that I really want to sort of pursue pursue other challenges basically and mm. I guess an athletic career has got to come to an end at some point you know we can't all be elite athletes into our you know into our 60s I was gonna say so no regrets you won't have regrets when you were sitting watching uh, the girls race next or no not at all no it's one of those ones where people always ask me that and I think people always expect me to say yes but I genuinely it was it was a really hard decision to make but it was the best decision I've ever made because I realized that I had given it everything I had but I couldn't have given it any more I don't think I would have had definitely not five more years five-year Olympic cycle since Rio to, to Tokyo 2021 and I think a lot of athletes retire and almost don't want to watch the sport because it's too painful but I, I don't feel like that so I think I've, I think I picked my time correctly I think had I retired too soon I would have found it difficult to watch but I, I don't I really enjoy no. it I'm a real, a real super fan these days <laughs> so um, I think I've got my timing right. So um, with your career now you've just returned to university to study medicine? Yep so I started yeah. studying at St George's which is University of London in right. South West London um, in Tooting so if anyone watches 24 hours in A&E it's, it's that hospital they feature oh, okay. there Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah so it, I'm doing so when I first retired I did a degree in human biology at Manchester Met which was really good for me it's a really good sort of way to get me back into education and the university are really supportive and um, I really enjoyed doing that degree yeah and then this degree in medicine this is a graduate entry course so everyone's got a degree in something it doesn't have to be a science degree and rather than do the standard five-year medicine degree we do it in four years so we still cover the same content but basically it's an accelerated speed so it's it's all a little bit tougher but um, it means we do it one year one year quicker well, best of luck with the rest of your studies. Um, uh, so uh, you're um, an ambassador for Alopecia UK. Um, yes. And I was um, reading up on it and I didn't realise that it says, according to the NHS website, that it affects around two in every thousand people in the UK. What's your own experience and of this condition? 
Yep, so alopecia basically means hair loss. So you can have all different types of alopecia and there's sort of varying reasons why. Uh, the type of alopecia I have, the theory is that it's your immune system that is fighting off your hair follicles. Um, so for most of my sort of childhood, I used to get small ball patches formed, but they used to then grow back again. Wasn't too much of a problem. Um, but then when I was 10, I lost, I lost all my hair. And since then, it's actually grown back a few times and then it's gone again a few times. And I've quite sort of got used to the cycle now of, yeah, I'll get regrowth. I'll yeah. get almost almost a whole head of hair, then it will start going out, get, falling out again, um, which, you know, I can almost I can talk happily about it now. But definitely that is a, that's a tough thing to go through as, as a sort of I'm teenage sure. girl. Well, yeah. as any age, you know, definitely not yeah. just limiting that to teenagers by any means. Um, but yeah, Alopecia UK, they work with um, people suffering from hair loss all ages um men and women um children everybody and they run support groups they run events um so we normally have an annual alton towers trip which um which is really nice because a lot of people with alopecia will wear wigs so i wear wigs um mm. wigs aren't the most practical things on roller coasters um <laughs> you, you can get away with a wig on a roller coaster with, with some good wig tape um it, it can be done but in general it's it's, it's not ideal um, and I think the Alton Tower ship is a really nice way to go somewhere like Alton Towers and for me to be able to walk around without a wig on and be with a group of people and not really worry about what people are thinking of me. Well, you know, there are some valuable lessons really from, you know, for the listeners to take away really from your journey in life so far. And one thing in particular um, I've read is that you say that nice girls don't finish last. And I love that. I think that's great. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I was told a lot of times in my career, like, you know, you can't be too nice. Like you've got to be a bit more aggressive, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not really that sort of person. And, and you know what? I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm probably not your stereotypical athlete maybe and you know actually who is and actually why not just just do you and you yeah know, be yourself be isn't kind. it yeah um yeah. and the other one i think was good is just grab any opportunity and really believe in yourself and i think that that's yeah a really good lesson to learn yeah i think it's taken opportunities that you might not even think would go anywhere i can think of so many times in my life when i've, when I've tried something and thought you know this is just for fun but actually you know it leads you down a whole path of something new and it's that being willing to put yourself out of your yeah. comfort zone and do those sort of things that you know you perhaps not might, might not feel okay about doing but it is surprising how things like that turn out well and i i like the the quote that you finish your book with um from dr zeus um be it's be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind yes i absolutely love that one um, yeah i do too yeah i think it applies to so many things as well and you know so many things that you might worry about or, or whatever it is so you know it can be applied in a lot of areas that's brilliant um just be before we go um just a, a couple of fun questions really joe just if you wouldn't mind Ooh. yeah just so finishing off the send these sentences for me um the oh, book okay. i'm currently reading is the man who mistook his wife for a hat by oliver Sacks. oh i've not heard of that so that one. is um it's a new he's a neurologist and he's talking about various different um obscure i guess neurological conditions um, yeah, it's fascinating. My current favourite song is. Oh God, I'm so like out of date with music. <laughs> I'm not like like my recently added songs are like from ten years ago. 
Can I can I go um, something Beyonce? Yeah, Beyonce's always that's fine. Beyonce's always Beyonce's albums. Yep, all all of all of Beyonce. Okay, my ringtone is. Oh, I think it's it's not even anything exciting. It's just whatever the phone does by itself. Okay, I'm a bit boring. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My current favorite TV program is. Oh. Oh God, I'm a bit boring here as well. I mainly just watch cycling, I have to be honest. So, you, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I've been enjoying following um, the very, very late um, season we've been having this year. So Tour de France and Giro d'Italia have just taken place um, yeah. very, very late in the season. So yeah, I spend most of my time um, watching Eurosport. Um, my favourite way to relax is? You know what, I really like going out for a nice leisurely walk. Yeah. And that's something that I couldn't really do as a cyclist because you all got to like rest your legs and everything. But just going for a walk, being outdoors, I love being outdoors. Um, and just, I don't know, listening to a podcast, listening to some music and just sort of walking outdoors. I love that. Well, that's funny. My, my next one is, my favourite podcast is? Oh, so except for your one. Oh, of except for mine, of course. Thank of you. Course. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? I've, I listen to a lot. I've actually, there's quite, quite a niche one. I've been listening to one called Sharp Scratch, which is oh. uh, aimed at medical students. So I'm a little bit geeky there. And the last one, my favourite cyclist is? Oh, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> my favourite cyclist. Okay, I am going to go with Ed Clancy. Um, Why Ed? Ed? Definitely listen to his podcast with Team GB. He did a really good, he had a really good chat with them. Um, yeah. Ed is... He's awesome. He's just so like down to earth, and he was something that someone that I really looked up to throughout my career. He was um, he's a team pursuer as well, so same event that I was doing at Olympic level, and he was always so good to chat to if um, I was nervous or things weren't going too well. Like really good at putting things into perspective. But um, yeah, lots of wise words. So yeah, I'd I'd fancy. Brilliant. Well, thanks ever so much, Joe. I've really enjoyed talking to you today and thanks for being my thank first you. ever guest. I'd like to thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share the word. Let me know your thoughts about the podcast and maybe who your ideal guest would be. Email in the spotlight with Sharon at gmail.com. Tweet me at SEE75 or Instagram in the spotlight with Sharon.